Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. All right, it's easy to say that you should give back power to your employees, for example. Um, That is until things turn upside down or there's a crisis or they don't do what you think they should do. It sounds like the right thing, but then what? And if you're like most leaders, the tendency is to take back control, either to manage the risk, to move things forward, to make sure you get the outcome you're looking for, or direct things in a way that gives you a productive outcome. And all of that, of course, I'm going to assume was with the absolute best of intention. What I want to talk about today is what else could you do or should you do? And we're going to do this by talking about somebody who has been there and done that. So my guest today is Bob Davids, and Bob is an entrepreneur. He started his first business at the age of 12. He went on to co-found Design Innovation Specialty at the young age of 27, which he sold to International Game Technology. And in the 1980s, Bob moved to Hong Kong to start an electronic handheld games business that eventually became Radica Games. Now, if you were into the gaming world, you would know that name pretty well because Radica invented handheld poker, which had over 300 million sales worldwide, making uh, Radica the third most profitable toy maker globally. And at 59, Bob retired and decided to invest his time in transforming some forgotten land into a very now beautiful winery called Sea Smoke Cellars that has been quoted as America's best new winery by food and wine, I might add. And if that's not enough, then Bob decided to go and build a resort in Bali in what is now called Villa Kiliki. I hope I said that correctly. So Bob has also had found time in the midst of all of this to do two things. His latest book is called Leadership Without Ego, co-written with Brian Carney and Isaac Getz. And he has a TED Talk that's been highly popular with well over a million views, again called Leadership Without Ego, Leadership the Rarest Commodity. So Bob... Welcome to the show. Well, it's nice to be here. Thank you, Wanda. Well, I'm glad to have you, and I'm glad. I just love periodically not just listening to people who write about leadership, but people who have been in the trenches doing it, had to make some of the tough decisions, and that's what I'm excited from hearing about from you today. But I want to start with a bit of your early journey. You say, and I want to talk about a person who was your mentor, Bob Townsend, And for those who don't know, Bob is accredited with turning Avis into the powerhouse that we know today. And he was CEO in the 1960s and helped really turn Avis into something that could become what we see today. And he's also the author of a book that has been, you know, on the bestseller list for eons called Up the Organization. But you said that Bob was your mentor and that he taught you about great leadership and that when you met him in the 1980s, he transformed your life. So what did you learn from him? Well, I learned a lot from him. I met him in the 1980s and uh, we had a nice little exchange. I was in line to uh, be a CEO of uh, the company he was joining the board. And uh, I was overlooked as the CEO. I thought I was ready. The company didn't. 
And uh, I went to Bob and I said, uh, what's going on? I'm the logical choice. And he says, you don't have the credentials. So my credentials, I took that to mean education. So I said, well, maybe I should further my education. And he said, that's always a good idea. And I says, okay, well, I'll go do an MBA. And he says, no, never do an MBA. He said, the world has too many managers already. The world needs leaders. So he, he really changed me by thinking the differences between management and leadership. Mm-hmm. He is sort of the grand master of the egalitarian style of leadership. And egalitarian, in his sense, means equal. He was the guy that joined the team, uh, was not above the team. He was equal to the team. And he developed a technique of pulling people as opposed to pushing people. Okay. All right. So explain what you mean or what he meant by pulling versus pushing. Well, my technique that I use is I ask. I can't remember the last time I gave a direct order. So I can lead the conversation any way I want by the type of question I have. I generally have the answer ahead of time. But what I want to do is catch them when they're right and teach them when they're wrong. I want them to think. I want them to make decisions. I want them to grow and be able to replace me. Okay. All right. Love it. I love it. It's exactly what I believe is what we need to be doing more often is having more powerful questions as a way of leading people where you want them to go and let it be their ideas as opposed to necessarily your ideas that you're telling. But can you give me an example about sometime you put this in practice? What did it, what actually happened? Well, in my TED Talks, I use the example of when I was in China and we were building a factory and uh, I walked by the, uh, the construction site and I was watching them pour the foundation. I have a technical background, so I, uh, I looked down in the trench and I saw that they were installing the sewer line flat, level. And uh, obviously that's not going to flow. They're going to pour a foundation over the top. The building will go on top. We'll never be able to fix it. So uh, I, I realized they didn't speak Chinese, so I took off my shoes on a rainy day and I jumped in the trench and uh, I took a rock and I put it under the level and I raised up the level and I got the pipe at about a 2% grade, which is the right angle to drain. And I signaled to them to, you know, put some sand under it and put the pipe in place. And then I went to the next pipe and I took my level and my rock and I sat there and I got it in the right position. And without saying a word, because I didn't speak Chinese. And without saying a word, I showed them how to do it. And then on the third pipe, I handed them the level in the rock. And then I watched them do exactly what I was doing. And then I went to the next pipe. I watched them do the second pipe right. I went up, got my shoes, went back to the hotel. So by pulling, I didn't tell them a thing because I couldn't. But by showing them and giving them examples of what needs to be due, you can pull people. The best way to pull is with a question. Okay. Okay. All right. So, again, I come with the idea of as the leader, you have some knowledge and you're going to be the egalitarian leader, meaning jump in the trench and work with them. But not that you need to stay there for forever. You show, 
and you exit. And I love this fact that you didn't feel like you had to stick around, that you you were done. They got the point that you needed the move, and then it was it's on to doing something else. Um, I want to go backwards, though. You said you were in line to be the CEO, and you thought you were ready, and the company saw it differently. So what did they think was missing, and were they right? Well, I'll answer the second part first. They were right. And the part that was missing was I didn't have any Wall Street uh, experience. I had not really thought about trading the stocks and dealing with investors and analysts and all those people. I'm a product guy, and I'm a manufacturing guy. So I was thinking that it was more about the products and the relationship with the customers. But once you go public, it's your relationship with the investors. Okay. And did you go and learn that? I had to. I became the CEO of Radica Games. We did a public offering in May of 1994. And then uh, I became the CEO of eight companies in six countries, 8,000 employees, about 20,000 shareholders. Um, it, was a, it was a big, big task. Of all the big rides you can take as a business person, I think the most exhilarating ride of all is to be the principal and take your company public. Huh. And why? What is it about that that's so exhilarating? Well, there's nothing above it. You're, you're <laughs> sort of at the, at the, the top of the mountain. Uh, it's really hard to stay there, by the way. But it, <laughs> once you get to the high that you're, you're playing with the big boys. You're playing in the big league. You're, you're, there's nothing higher. When you get to take a company public, and now you're responsible, you've, you've got all the weight of the world on top of you now, you, and there's no place to turn, except I was lucky. I recruited Bob Townsend onto my board of directors, and I did it six months before the public offering so he could be on the board as, as we went public. I didn't have contact with Bob very much after 1980. But a friend of mine stayed in contact with Bob Townsend. I asked my friend, I said, Bob, have Bob join the board? And uh, my friend came back to me a week or so later, and he says, uh, Bob Townsend rejected you. I said, what? And he says, yeah, he rejected you. He's busy. And I says, well, go back to Townsend and tell him I reject his rejection. My friend says, I can't do that. I said, you have to do it. Just do it. You know, what are they going to do? Eat you? Just do it. And he went back to Townsend and he said, uh, Mr. Davis has rejected your rejection. And Bob Townsend took the bait and he says, on what grounds? <laughs> so my friend calls me back. I'm in Hong Kong. And he says, Bob Townsend wants to know why you rejected his rejection. And I says, because he hadn't heard our story. And my friend calls me back. He says, Townsend will meet you at the Biltmore Hotel in Los Angeles, California at this date. I flew there to see Bob Townsend. He was with a man named Jim O'Toole. And uh, he, Jim O'Toole was a professor of leadership at, uh, at uh, Stanford, I believe, USC. And so the two gentlemen were there, Bob Townsend and James O'Toole. And uh, Townsend put his watch on the table, and he says, you have one hour, one hour to tell your story. I said, okay. So I started telling him about Radica and our unique position and da-da-da-da-da, our leadership style. 
I told him, I reminded him about our meeting in the 1980. He, he had no recollection. And so uh, Down, uh, O'Toole had been dealing with China, and that's why Downson had brought him to the meeting. <clears throat> so I, I spent a lot of time talking about our incursion into China and what we were doing there and the differences we were making with the people and the business cultures. And uh, Townsend listened intently. We went two hours. Mm-hmm. And at the uh, end of the two hours, he looks at me and he says, if you get O'Toole, you get Townsend. So I reached across the table, didn't look at O'Toole, and I shook hands with Bob Townsend. I said, welcome to the board. And then I had him as my private teacher go-to advisor for the last six years of his life, and he died in January of 1999. Okay. Okay. So he's really then the one that's making sure you, in this top of the mountain, you know, playing with the big boys, responsible for everything. It's Bob Townsend who's keeping you grounded. Is that a good expression? Yes. He gave me his phone number and he says, call me at three in the morning. (laughs) He says, if there's something you can't handle, he says, uh, don't be afraid to call me. He says, uh, you'll know if it's important enough. And so I would ask questions generally about conflict with board members, uh, those kinds of things. But Townsend gave so much advice in the board meetings, like he, he forbid us to use, the directors, he forbid us to use the S word, which was stock price. He says, you can never, ever think about the stock price. Run your company, build your product, to sell them, build a better company, and never think about the investors except be successful. That was ahead of its day. Oh, and it's still ahead of his days. When he wrote his book in 1969, he was so far ahead of everybody that, you know, don't be special. In his book, he says the way you can tell a poor-run company is to drive by the parking lot, and if you see a name on a parking spot, keep driving. It's a bad company. Now, how many people listening here today have their name on a parking spot? Yeah. So, you know, my understanding of part of Townsend's mantra was that all the privilege, a hot word today, that we bestow on executives, on top leaders, is bad strategy. Is that your understanding? Oh, in spades. It's super bad strategy. So I I listened to Bob Townsend from 1980. When I met him in in, in, uh, 1980... He uh, wanted to interview me because he was joining the board. He said, I need 15 minutes. We spent five hours. During those five hours, I think he knew I was in his camp. Because the more he talked about what he was doing, I would tell him what I was doing. And we had a a respect that, you know, know, how you really treat people. So I hadn't heard about his book. So I went out that night, bought the book, read it cover to cover, and... uh, I, I implement a lot of the things. One of the things he says is don't have an office. So from 1980 onward, I refused to have an office. When I was in Hong Kong at Radica, I was in a big room with 75 Cantonese speakers. Well, it was that fun. And uh, I had two chairs in front of my desk. If you want something to talk about, come and sit down. If it's private, we'll go into a, uh, into a conference room. 
but you don't need an office. You don't need a fancy desk. You don't need a car. I had a car. I was the CEO of eight companies, and I drove a 1980 Honda with rusted fenders. And my staff couldn't believe it. And they said, you can get a better car. I says, we need the money to build the company. I don't need a car. We need a better company. And when we went to pick the pick up the chairman of one of the Japanese game companies at the Hong Kong airport, I said, I'll go pick him up in my car. And they said, you can't do that. I said, why not? And they said, well, the car's got some rust on it, and it's an old car. I said, yeah, but that chairman's a smart guy. He'll know that we're going to give him the best price because we didn't waste it on a car. <laughs> and did it work? Yep. <laughs> I'm going to tell you another price story. Okay. I was in a meet. I was in a meeting. I was. We were building the poker game, and uh, it was taking off like crazy. And we were having trouble getting suppliers to get us parts. My purchasing department had this one vendor that we had been with a long time, and uh, she was in a negotiation in the conference room all day long. And the meeting's finally over, and she comes to me and he says, uh, "We finally negotiated with Mr. Wong, and." And I got him down to 7% margin on his, on his part, portion. And I said, he wants to talk to you and shake hands. I said, okay. So I walk in and I shake hands and I said, I'm sorry, but we really can't do this deal. And they said, what do you mean? I said, the 7%. They said, well, we can't go any lower. I said, no, I want to go higher. They said, higher? I says, yeah, because right now we're getting 300 thousand games a day going out and when we go to a million a day he won't have the money to supply us and we'll make him go broke at seven percent and he won't be there when we need him so if he wants to raise it to nine percent i'll do the deal okay and they everybody in the room dropped their jaw yeah so i left the meeting shook hands and we we left and I went and sat at my desk, and the staff comes over, and they said, what are you doing? What was that? And I said, well, <clears throat> Mr. Wong, we can't get any loans at the bank, and Mr. Wong's going to fund the purchase of, you know, 900 million parts. So I can't get a loan at the bank for 2%. But if Mr. Wong will accept this very nice offer of increasing his 2%, and he carries the, the money... That's a 2% loan. That's much better. We're going to do at the bank, and we're going to stay in business. Mm -hmm. So then they finally said, wow, that's thinking ahead. <laughs> it sounds very much like um, some of the elements of what's now fairly common practice in Toyota, where you want to make sure that your suppliers have a strong business, that you're not going to just cheat them on price and cheat them on price and then switch to another vendor who wants the business every couple of years and then you have nobody there who's available to supply. It's about sustaining that entire, we would now say, ecosystem to make sure that your suppliers are strong. And it turns out to be a win for you as well in terms of capital. That's exactly right. But in China, it goes one step further. Mm -hmm. Because in China... It's not so much about the contract. It's about the handshake. Mm -hmm. And when you do the handshake and you build a relationship with that company, 
you are now in the same boat. You're in the same family. You need to take care of them because he's going to take care of you. So it's really important in China is, is to build that handshake relationship with all the suppliers that it takes to be successful. I had a deal with all of our suppliers. I'll go out and get the business. You guys get it made. Okay. All right. And did that end up solving your supply problem so that you could actually grow the poker game business? Uh, the short answer is yes, but you, you never solve all your supply problems. <laughs> I got that one. All right. I'm going to take us out of the supply chain business and the price negotiation business and back to leading your organization. Um, and this whole notion of leadership without ego, the, the willingness to pull as opposed to push, to ask versus to tell, to get in the trenches if you need to, but not necessarily stay in the trenches, to find people doing the right things. You said catch them doing the right things and teach them if they're doing the wrong things. All right. I know you have a ton more philosophies because I can look at your book and I see pages and pages and pages of piece of advice. What else do you think is key for doing this um, leadership without ego? Catch it when they're right. <clears throat> teach it when they're wrong. Okay. Don't let have them make the decisions. In my companies, nobody ever got in trouble for making a mistake. You get in a lot of trouble for not making a decision. The opportunity to make a decision and the opportunity to make a mistake is a learning experience. And so every time you see that mistake, you don't catch it. You catch the right. It's, it's like Maslow's. If you want to right. talk about motivation, read, read Abraham Maslow. But right. you catch them when they're right, and you teach them when they're wrong. So what okay. I would do is sit down, and then whatever went wrong, we would sit down without any personalities, and we would talk about the exact spot where the communications broke or where the, where the failure was, why that didn't work. And then without any ego or emotion or personalities, once you fix that, we say, now, does everybody see where that broke? Yeah. Anybody have any ideas? Now we're asking questions again. Anybody have an idea how we can instill that in the company? How do we get that visibility so that we don't make that particular mistake again? I have one story I have to tell you. Okay. I had, I had, a, 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 I had a president of the company that, that we have. One of the companies was in China. We had a factory with uh, 8,000 beds serving 25,000 meals a day. It was a headache. So I needed a good, strong leader in there, and, and the man that was there was uh, a dictator, so I had to let him go. And I, I had the right guy, and his initials were SC. And I said, SC, I want you to become the president of the factory company. And he says, I can't do it. I said, why not? He says, well, I, I'm afraid I'll make a mistake. I said, well, we all make mistakes. He said, I, I, just, I just don't think. I said, SC, you are the perfect man for this job. You need to go in there. I'll be behind you every second. Go in there, take the daily control, and we'll straighten out the, the culture inside the factory. I just can't do it. I'm so afraid I'm going to make a mistake. I said, SC, you're really disappointed in me. I said, SC, I was hoping that you'd want to be a CEO someday. 
and he lit up like a candle. He says, oh, I do want to be a CEO someday, so here's my opportunity. I said, really, you want to be a CEO? He says, yes. I said, would you like for me to tell you the secrets of being a CEO? <laughs> he says, yes, please. I said, take out a piece of paper. Okay, now write this down exactly. Okay? First part, make more mistakes than anybody else. He says, what? I said, write it down. Make more mistakes than anybody else. Second line, never make the same mistake twice. <laughs> You're not going to be a CEO if you don't have experience. And the more experience you have and the more mistakes you make, the more you learn. Just don't repeat it. And did that convince him? He took this up. Did a phenomenal job. Okay. Okay. All right. It's so easy to say that you're not going to get in trouble for making a mistake, but you will get in trouble for not making a decision. And I actually think that's really brilliant advice and really a good philosophy for leading a group of people. It's easy to say it, but when you sit there and you're worried about your own performance, you're worried about the customers, you're worried about the metrics and the numbers and the risk profile and the, how do you keep yourself from getting too anxious about the mistakes? Well, maturity, number one, and age, you, know, you just don't jump in. But the, the criteria for making that particular decision is how big is the potential mistake? Now, if they're a publicly traded company and that mistake is going to cause a significant loss that prompts a, a small shareholder lawsuit, and I'm going to get in, right? I'm going to go in at that point, and I'm going to take the heat if it fails because I'm getting paid to take the heat. They're not. Okay, so, but if it's something operational or parts or something like that, stay out. Mm-hmm. Only if there's huge danger do you jump in. And okay. it's just discipline. Okay. All right. So it's only if it's huge danger. Yep. Um, and something that you're going to end up taking the heat for. Yep. is when you want to jump in. All right. I have one more question before we take a break, and that is to go back to this point where you say, catch them if they're right and teach them when they're wrong, a great philosophy, and that you would sit down and have people review the exact spot where either there was a mistake or a misunderstanding or communication broke down or something didn't work, and talk about what happened and what could we do and how do we then teach the organization this. Now, that's also, I think, a brilliant philosophy and not nearly practiced well, not even closely enough practice in the companies that I work in. But getting people's defenses down enough, feeling psychologically safe enough to tell, to talk honestly about that is a hard thing. So how did you get people willing to have that conversation with you in an open way? Well, the first thing is you're talking about culture now, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to build a, a culture within a company. There's only one person in an organization that can build a culture and maintain that culture. That's the person with the final decision. That person's job is to build that culture and keep that culture. And to, the way you to build that trust, it comes back to the qualities of a great leader. The number okay. one quality of a great leader is honesty. When I say honesty, I mean a thousand percent honesty. Once they see that you're totally honest, you have the visibility, 
you have the communication skills, you have the energy, the charisma, you've got all those characters to become that leader, they can start to trust you. I don't know if we're taking a break now, but when we come back, I want to talk about the, uh, the duties of the CEO. Great. That sounds like a perfect opportunity to take a break. So um, with me today is Bob Davids. Bob is an entrepreneur, as, as you've heard, and he was at one time the CEO of Radica Games, which produces had the handheld poker game, the first one, with over 300 million sales worldwide. And he's gone on to create a couple of other um, companies that have been quite successful since then. When we come back, I'd love to talk about the duties of the CEO. So we'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But don't forget to make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. I'm with Bob Davids. Bob is an entrepreneur, first co-founding design, well, excuse me, first co-founding international game technology, which became Radica, and then moving on to sea smoke sellers and then to other things as well. Now, we were just talking about what it means to lead without ego, and the hallmark line in that one is to pull, to pull, not push. And one of the ways of doing that is catch people when they're right and teach them when they were wrong. And that led us to this whole notion about the duties of a CEO. So, Bob, I can't resist. What do you see as the duties of a CEO? Well, first, let's talk about CEO. Okay. I believe that CEO is reserved for a publicly traded company and president is when you're a privately held company. To be the chief CEO, the, uh, the, the chief executive officer, there has to be several other executive officers. Mm-hmm. So a CEO is of a very large corporation. To be the, the, the CEO, your number one responsibility is always morale. 
It sounds easy. That's the most difficult of all. Your second step is the protection of corporate assets. And number three is profitability. If you take a look at the airline industries in the United States in the 1990s, they turned profit and morale upside down. Mm-hmm. And American Airlines, United Airlines had a ton of trouble because the CEOs inverted those two. So in morale, you have to, to, to build that culture where everybody's comfortable to be honest and, and, and join the team, so to speak. Okay. But to be a good leader... You never want to be loved. <clears throat> you don't even want to be liked. But if you can't earn the respect of every single person, then you shouldn't be in that position. So the big question becomes, how do you earn respect? Hmm? That's, I ask a lot of CEOs. I say, well, how do you earn respect? I never get a good answer. The good <laughs> answer is, The good answer is fairness. Mm -hmm. If you can prove yourself to be fair, that's how you're going to start to build that culture where people can open up. Mm -hmm. So now here's the $64 question. How do you get fairness? Yeah. Fairness is very difficult. But it took me 30 years to figure out you have to take the time to share the information. I have a long story that I tell about how, how that manifests itself. We don't have time here today. But basically, if you're going to build that culture where everybody's going to open up and participate, they have to trust you. They have to trust you, and they have to trust everybody on that team. So your job, remember, number one is morale. So if you're going to, and the way you build the morale is to build the culture. If you get that culture built right through honesty and communication, then you have a chance for everybody to participate. If somebody feels left out, you're not going to get it. Okay. Boy, that is a hugely important message, especially in this day and, and age and all that is going on around the world. All right. So that we want to build the more, we keep morale strong by building the culture and we build a culture, culture where everybody can feel honest and communicate and not feel left out. Okay. And trust is the hallmark or the underpinning of all of that. So in your mind, what is it that you have done that helps build a culture that you just described where there's honesty and communication and people do not feel left out? I became a servant. Okay. And so lots of people use that, as but a give servant, me an example. What, what, what I need to do as a servant is to get, I'm going to give you an example. You've got people, and the job is to dig a trench. Those people are going to need a sharp shovel. And then with that shovel, I bring an umbrella. I hold the umbrella over the top of them so nothing distracts them. And the third thing is encouragement. So as a servant in that business, I'm supplying the tools, keeping away the distractions, and providing the encouragement. And remember, they're not threatened because you don't get caught if you make a mistake. I see how it all fits together. And a better definition of servant leadership than I've heard in a whole long time. So you're giving people the tools they need. You're keeping away the distractions and sometimes recognizing that the distractions are my latest idea as the CEO. And then you're encouraging. Yep. Okay. It sounds, it's easy. 
Yeah, easy to say, hard to keep myself out of the way of causing all the problems. And I think we're back to how do you lead without ego. All right, the duties of the CEO are number one, the morale, and therefore the culture. Number two, protect the corporate assets. And number three, profitability and don't get them out of order. So what do you mean when you say protect the corporate assets? What does that look like? Well, you've got a responsibility to protect the factory and the shareholders' interests and, and don't you know put us into lawsuits and all that stuff. You need to protect the assets before you try to make profit. Okay. See, a lot of CEOs don't even consider their second responsibility of protecting the assets. You've got brand name recognition. You've got all those things that are valuable to a company, and the people don't put the right weight on protecting that. So you've got to take care of the people take care of the assets, and then look to be profits. Townsend okay. used to get all over me if I would start to talk about profits. He would just shut me off and say, let's get the people right, let's get the product right, let's protect all the assets, and then if the profit happens, it happens. Mm-hmm. That's rather amazing. It reminds me of a lot of the push at the moment among a variety of companies and particularly ones that are focusing on the millennial generation around purpose and that sense of what are we here to accomplish apart from just making money Um, and that keeping that purpose front and center. Now, that's not what you described, but it's another way of saying profits aren't the only thing that matter here, that if we do some other things right, the profits will follow. I tell the staff very simply, if the product is right, they'll rip it from our hands. Just as a side note, I've never paid a dime in advertising, ever. Not for my wine business, not for any business, because I don't believe in advertising. Sorry, advertising executives. (laughs) But you can't measure it. My philosophy is take that same money and put it in the profit, excuse me, in the product. Get that product absolutely perfect. Once that product is that good, the people will rip it from your hands and the word of mouth is better than any advertising you could ever pay for. I think we're seeing that at the moment in spades and social media um, in ways that you kind of can't control. That's word of mouth and the ways it spreads so rapidly. Okay, I love it. The job of the CEO, number one, morale. Number two, protect the corporate assets, which are not the physical assets, they're also the intangible assets like brand and reputation. And number three is profitability and a little bit of the profit comes if you protect, do you get the first two right? I want to shift gears. I want to talk for a minute about sea smoke sellers. So first off, for people who don't know this, you've managed to create a premier Pinot Noir wine from what people said couldn't be done. Just give us a tiny little bit of the pitch of the story at Sea Smokes Mount Cellars. Well, first I have to tell you, I met Bill Hara, the casino magnet. I met him in 1975, and I was doing a job for him, and he said to me, remember, son, there's always room at the top of every market. So it never left me. I, I actually did a business degree, a master's at Caltech, even though Townsend told me not to. And, and in that business modeling, you, you set your goal is to be at the top of the market, which means you do a lot of analysis. 
as to how to get to that top. What is quality? How do you get to it? Well, in Pinot Noir, which, by the way, is the most difficult crop on the planet, except for orchids, but Pinot Noir, out of 5,000 varieties of grapes, is by far the most difficult variety. And uh, the French, they call it the heartbreak grape, uh, the fickle grape. But the key... I read over 100 books on Burgundy, and the one thread that goes through all the books is Pinot Noir has to be in exactly the right spot. You move 100 feet over, and you could lose all the quality. So I hired a team of experts. I was busy in Hong Kong, so I hired a team of experts, and they went around the world for two years looking for the perfect spot to grow Pinot Noir. They found it on the Santa Inez River north of Santa Barbara. Okay. The, the land wasn't for sale. I spent a year and a half befriending the man and finally got the property, and it took another two years to plant it. And, uh, and we, we were selected in the world's top 100 wines 100 days after we sold our first bottle. Okay. Pretty good. That tells you that we found the right – I didn't find it. That tells you the experts found the right site. So yeah. our job right now is we don't spend any money on advertising. We have, and I did something crazy, is um, I decided that I didn't want any bricks and mortar. So I had no tasting room. And if my staff said, you're nuts, you're crazy. You have to have a tasting room. I said, I don't want to deal with the people. I don't want to hire an intelligent person to talk to a stupid person. And they said, how are you going to sell the wine? I said, well, there's this new thing called the Internet. (laughs) And I said, why don't we sell direct to consumer and we will get the grape growers margin, we'll get the the winemakers margin, the distributors margin, and the retailers margin. How's that for a business model? And they thought it was nuts, but we did it, and we became the first direct to consumer wine distributor in America. Okay. Great. All right. Now, the part of this for so fabulous success and, you know, great, it's done phenomenal job. So well done for you. The part of the story that I'm most intrigued by is exactly what we've been talking about. And this is as you're setting things up and you're giving the power of individuals to decide what they need. I have a couple of moments in there where people were asking for some pretty big things. So tell me about one of the stories where you've said it's your job, you decide. Oh, I have to think back. There's, there's, there's several. <clears throat> Pick your favorite. Well, if, you, uh, if you're in, in, a, in class doing your business courses, that's called a make or buy decision. Mm-hmm. And, and so you basically do the analysis. When they come to you and they say, we want to do this, and then you go into the make or buy analysis and you say, you know, do we really want to vertically integrate? You know, what does that do to our brick-and-mortar profile? You, you take a look at all those aspects of it before you make the decision. But I, mm-hmm. I don't try to make that final decision. What I do is keep asking the questions. And basically, my questions are, I'll give you an, I'll give an example. In my present business, we have a lot of land. And one piece is secluded. And one gentleman says, what if we started growing cannabis on that land? And I said, well, I don't know if I want to get involved with the controversy of cannabis, but I don't want to shut you off. So why don't you do your homework? And in the meantime, I want you to talk to a guy in 
in Denver that moved from Florida to Denver so he could grow cannabis legally. I said, I want you to go. His name was Joey. I said, I want you to get on the airplane, fly to Denver. Joey will meet you at the airport. You have one hour with Joey. You get back on the airplane and go back to Santa Barbara. And I said, I want you to ask Joey one question. What are your biggest problems? My, my, my fella, this, he was so hell-bent on growing cannabis. He flew there, spent an hour with Joey, came back, calls me up, and he says, we're not, we're not touching that with a stick. <laughs> so I didn't have to make the decision. I just asked all the right questions, and I let them decide. Okay. And we're right back to pushing those decisions down into the organization. Now, how do you know the right questions to ask, Bob? That seems if you can't ask the right questions, you're in deep trouble. That's true. And now we're getting into talent. Okay. So when I was 18 years old, I made a little chart to, to garvin my life by. Number one, a thing that is out there is luck. If, if luck is most important. And number two is talent. And below talent is brains, and below brains is money. I didn't have any money. I had a little bit of brains, but I had talent. So I need luck and talent. So to ask the right question, it takes the talent that a person has to see the overview of what the, what's going on and then to pull people by asking the right questions. And, and I, I think you can't learn talent out of a book. It's like, you know, you can't learn swimming out of a book. You either have the talent or you don't. And that's called leadership. And if you have the leadership talent, um, your job is to discipline that talent and to polish it for the rest of your life. So in some ways, what you're saying is that you've honed the skill of asking the questions that have the overview, that get people to see the dynamics, the bigger picture, the challenges, the obstacles, so they make the right decisions. Is that a um, fair statement? Yes, exactly. I use the word consensus. So I would call meetings and bring everybody in, and I'd get all these opinions. And mm-hmm. it's what I call the additive logic stage, where the, everything's coming out of all the things. And then I go into subtractive logic, and I get it down to a few points. And then I start asking the questions. I think I already know where we're going but I don't want it to give the answer. Mm-hmm. I want to catch them when they're right. I'm going to ask them the questions that lead them to the answer. Now, there's 5% of the time when they don't get there, you just say, okay, I'm invoking executive privilege. 5% of the time, I'm going to say, okay, we're going to do it this way, end of discussion. But 95% of the time, I want them to come up with the answer because I, I want them to buy into it. I learned years ago, if a salesman thinks he can't sell a product, he can't sell it. <laughs> people have to buy in. And the way you get people to buy in is they create it. Create it. Okay. All right. Fabulous. Boy, I think if we all took those, whether we're CEO or just leading a mid-sized team or even a small team for that matter, and you thought about very seriously, how do you stop telling people the answer and how do you start asking questions so people can discover their own answers, make their own decisions? 
All right. So, Rob, we talked a lot about culture. I want to talk for a minute more about trust because I think this is a really important one. And you've talked about how you build trust in that you're getting people to respect you and you do that through fairness and honesty, 1000% honest, you said, which I think is really important. I want to know how do you, what do you do when you have information that you know you can't share? As widely, you can't be 100% honest. How do you handle those kind of situations? Well, to be a CEO, you have to compartmentalize everything. You know, you have to, you know, put put that problem in a box and leave it in that box until you've time to work on that box. So I compartmentalize, but I rarely, rarely do that because I had a, a board member on Radica Games, General Cal Waller. He was the second in charge at Desert Storm. And he says to me, he says, you can never BS the troops. The guys that are putting their life on the line know in a heartbeat, if you're honest. And so I've never forgotten that. And so when I go in, I don't, I don't fudge. I don't, I don't shade it. I, I tell them what it is. I said, here's our problem. And I, I try not to ever hide that from them because you're going to lose your respect. You need that respect above all. If they don't respect you, they will not trust you. And if you lie to them and they catch you in that lie, or if they catch you taking anything from the culture, then you don't have them anymore. Okay. All right. It's a pretty strong statement. All right. Now I want to lift the, t- the tables and ask in the reverse direction. That means you also have to trust people. I know an awful lot of leaders who struggle with giving trust. So how do you, how do you come to decide that someone's you're going to trust someone? They're innocent until proven guilty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's easy to say, Bob. And, <laughs> you trust them and trust them and trust them. And then they make a mistake. And then you evaluate that. Was it intentional? Was that malicious? And you sit there and you say, well, another, they go on and never make another one. So you say it was accidental. But if somebody repeats it, it repeats it, it repeats it. And then, and then I, I used, I, when I was 16 years old, my mother used to put Ann Landers columns on my, on my uh, uh, pillow. Mm-hmm. And she wouldn't lecture me. She just put Ann Landers on my pillow. And, and she talked about when do you get rid of somebody? Mm-hmm. And she said, you ask the question, are you better off with them or without them? And the second you're better off without them is the time they're gone. Okay. The second you're better off without. You're, they're Great. gone. A swift sword cuts clean. Yeah. I see, and I certainly coach an awful lot of people who uh, make the mistake of waiting too late to take an action on somebody and then regret it because the ripples of that one can be enormous. So I, I agree. If you realize that they're not going to, if you're better off without them, then you make a decision quickly. Okay, Bob, we've got three minutes, actually technically two and a half minutes. And I like to end on an occasion that was the hardest for you to get out of your comfort zone. And what I'm interested in is what ultimately led to your success in getting out of your comfort zone? Well, first as a CEO, it's your job to stay in the comfort zone. <laughs> to get out of my comfort zone, I had some suicides in the factory in China. That took me way out of my comfort zone. I have had some containers fall off and hurt boats in, in Korea. That, that took me out of my comfort zone. <laughs> 
I think the one thing that Townsend taught me is to never worry about things you can't control. And so things that I couldn't control, I totally put out of my mind. But the things I could control, I absolutely put them under a microscope and I worried them until I got a solution. Okay. So how do I get out of it? I don't get excited. Okay. Okay. So in other words, there's keep those emotions calm. You have to. They won't trust you. Great. That's excellent. All right. I love that. I also love that you said that you're really razor sharp about the things that I can't control and then put those out of your mind. We're done. But the things that you can control, put under a microscope. And I'm right back to what you said we did with the team that you evaluate. What happened? Why did it happen? What's the point at which it happened? What could we have done differently? How we do this? You know, kind of how do we instill this in everybody under the microscope and then keep as calm as is possible so that people stay trusting you, respecting you. Bob, what a fabulous conversation. I think my favorite phrase out of all of today is one very simple one, which is catch people when they're right and teach them when they're wrong. That's the part that's going to stick with me. So my guest today is Bob Davids. He's an entrepreneur, Sea Smoke Sellers. He was with Radica Games and is now working on a resort in Bali. So, Bob, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Wanda. It's been a real pleasure. Likewise, the book also is Leadership Without Ego, if you're interested, and the TED Talk is called the same. Join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.